The time is March 6, 1982. The place is the North Atlantic in Canada's coastal waters north of Nova Scotia. The situation is as follows. Canada's largest icebreaker, the Canadian Coast Guard ship Louis Saint Laurent, is performing routine operations in favorable conditions. As the crew prepares for a fire drill, 18-year-old Anthony Patterson is learning the ropes of maritime life. It's only his seventh day at sea, and everything on board seems like an adventure. Until the fire alarm begins to sound before the scheduled fire drill. Smoke begins to fill the cabins and the bridge, and Anthony is about to be thrust into a crash course in marine emergency duties. This is Legacy Survival Stories. Legacy Survival Stories. Welcome to Legacy Survival Stories. I'm Dan Latramoy, and I'll be your host. We've got another great show for you today. We're bringing to you a longtime Coast Guard personnel, a master mariner, a search master. Um, he's got a bachelor in maritime studies. Um, he's worked search and rescue. He is currently the director of marine simulation at Virtual Marine Systems in Newfoundland. Uh, and he comes today to us with an incredible story uh, from early on in his career with the Canadian Coast Guard. So, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you Anthony Patrick. Patterson. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. It's uh, it's fantastic. I, I know that uh, you've been at this a long time, and I know you've got a whole bunch of stories. Uh, and it's a little unusual to have somebody who's who's got a long and storied career like yours um, that had such a uh, dramatic uh, story so early in his career, uh, which is the story I think that we're going to hear today. Um, so, if you don't mind, why don't you set the tone for us? Um, th- what year is what year is this happening in? Okay, so we're going all the way back to 1982, and uh, in case anyone can find the official report, which I, I can't, and they're trying to follow along, this is coming from my memory. Uh, as an 18-year-old, my seventh day at sea in the Coast Guard. So you are literally 18 years old and literally on your seventh day on a Coast Guard ship. So how, how did you end up there? Did you go through the Coast Guard College? Right. So I grew up in uh, Saskatchewan and, uh, and I applied to go to the Coast Guard College after I failed the eyesight test to get into the Air Force. <laughs> I thought driving a ship was going to be like flying a plane. I was completely wrong, but I made the right choice for the wrong reason. Well, and, you never uh, know where you're going to end up, do you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so I joined the uh, Coast Guard uh, at the Coast Guard College in August of uh, 1981. And uh, it, it at that time, the program was called the Sandwich Program. So we do some training at the college and then a sea phase and then back to the college, back to sea, back to the college again. And that, and that happened over a three-year period. Okay. So at the time then, the, like the, the whole program was, was three years? Yeah, that's right. It was a three-year pro- It was called the Sandwich Program. So it was roughly two years of academics and one year of sea uh, service. And when people hear that, it sounds like it sounds like a you know a two to one ratio, but it, it certainly isn't, is it? Because when you're at sea, you're at sea. It's not as if you get to take a break and go home in the evenings, is it? No, that's right. In fact, we were working twelve hour days uh, when we were at sea. Uh, cadets are the lowest uh, on the lowest rung of the ladder on the ship, so we get to do <laughs> absolutely everything. You're fodder. So- <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're the gophers. <laughs> Exactly. So, so from my, uh, you know, from August when I joined the college until December, that was the first academic phase. And that really was just getting everyone to the same uh, theoretical level on the basics of navigation. So there was people that, that were in my class who, you know, had been in sea cadets and stuff, you know, that, that already, de- already knew a lot of things about chart work and things like that. But for me, it was a mountain of a learning curve. I absolutely knew nothing about uh, the water or navigation or anything like that. So, had you grown up so, on boats or anything, or, or this was no. entirely new? Yeah, it was entirely new. The first time I actually saw a ship uh, uh, that I can remember seeing a ship was flying into Vancouver for my interview with the Coast Guard. So, I, I, well, I suppose it does make some sense. Uh, there's not a ton of ships in Saskatchewan unless you get uh, way, way, way up there. Well, that's right. Now, in Saskatchewan, I was a swimmer uh, and a lifeguard. So I had aquatic safety was my background. And I think that's kind of what drew me to the Coast Guard as my second choice after the Air Force is that, uh, you know, I, I'd been a lifeguard. Uh, I, you know, I'd actually rescued some people in pools. And, and it seemed to me that, 
you know, the Coast Guard was close to that. So that's that, it, it, no more than that. It was just that was the only connection. Well, once you get a taste of it, it's uh, it, it's hard to get the water out of your blood once you've got it in there, isn't it? Oh, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> strange things happen in strange places. <laughs> so, so then what happened is that, uh, you know, at the end of exams uh, in December, uh, then the navigating class, you know, went home for Christmas. But then in January, we were assigned to go on board ships. Okay, so you're returning to, and this is the Coast Guard Coast. At the time, it, it was in Sydney, Nova Scotia, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so uh, yeah, in fact, it still is. Uh, so the Coast Guard College is based in Sydney. It's uh, at the old Point Edward Navy base is where, where it originally was. Um, and, uh, you know, and so we went we went home, came back, and I was assigned to Maritimes region at the time. It's now all been bundled together into Atlantic region, but at the time it was Maritimes region. Uh, with the headquarters in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And uh, when I arrived there, I was assigned uh, as one of, I think it was six cadets that were assigned to the Louis Saint Laurent, uh, you know, the largest icebreaker in the fleet. And it had the most capacity to take cadets because most ships would only get one cadet, but the Louis had six because they had so much space on board. It, it's funny but, you say uh, the most capacity to take cadets and you took the, the, the whopping load of, of six cadets on board. <laughs> well, well, that's yeah, that's right. Well, there was uh, how many came out in that sea phase? There was about uh, f- uh, fifty navigating cadets came out in January sea phase. Okay, and and so they'd be and they'd be scattered across the country, assigned to various vessels. Do you have any choice in that, or they just sort of tell you you're going here, you're going there? Yeah, zero choice. They just they pull your name out of a hat and off you went. Now, what they tried to do is that over your three year program, like your two sea phases, they tried to give you a little bit of time on an icebreaker. A little bit of time on a search and rescue uh, vessel, and a little bit of time on a buoy tender. Okay, well that's good. A little, a little bit of cross exposure. Yeah, so you would get, you would get to know kind of how those operations worked. And as cadets, we were in fact we only went on the bridge to steer or to be a lookout. Our main focus was to uh, really understand how things worked as a seaman, like someone on deck and doing the same job that the crew was doing. It was very important that we've we figured that out because this is our one and only chance in our career to actually work on deck. <laughs> There's probably a joke there about the one and only chance in your career to actually do some work, but I'll, I'll, I'll let it ride for now. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, 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 it's not much of a joke. Anyways. <laughs> so what, uh, so being on the Louis was, uh, I was kind of, I was kind of upset at first because the Louis at the time uh, she had, uh, uh, boilers. So uh, it was a steam turbine vessel and the steam engines could generate a tremendous amount of power, but the, the cost was very high fuel consumption. So now you fast forward to the early 80s after the fuel crisis in the 70s is that the Louis was probably the most expensive ship for the, for the Coast Guard to operate. So, so if you don't mind me asking, why uh, then does that mean that you don't want to be on it? Is it because you think they're not going to do much just due to the cost of operating it? Yeah, exactly. She was going to be stuck in in Dartmouth. Uh, the very last ship to be deployed on Gulf icebreaking operations was going to be the Louis Saint Laurent because of the cost of fuel. Well, that's so uh, yeah, all okay. my friends. So, that's fair. so everybody else is going off to do exciting <laughs> things, and you're going to end up sitting, you know, in a bunk at the dock, basically. Pretty well, and that was from January until the beginning of March. That's exactly what what happened. In fact, I, I remember we were on the Louis. Um, you know, the in February. That's when the Ocean Ranger sank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that's uh, right. Same year. That's right. Yeah, a lot same of year. And, that year. Well, exactly. And I remember going up on the bridge because we could pick up uh, the at night. We could pick up uh, the uh, the radio broadcasts on on two one eight two. So we could hear uh, the operations going on in the Grand Banks in Halifax from the ship's uh, radio system. Just for the so folks still- back home, uh, when you refer to 2182, what are you referring to there? Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a radio frequency. So it's kind of like the medium frequency for for intermediate range communications. Like uh, normally you can go 200, 300 miles. But at night, you know, with environmental and atmospheric skip, you can sometimes receive broadcasts, you know, maybe 500, 1,000 miles away. And it just kind of depends on the evening. And it just so happened on on that, you know, when the Ocean Ranger went down and, and you know, and the search after the Ocean Ranger, that the atmospheric skip was such that uh, 
that we could at night we could hear the broadcast in Halifax. Wow! And, well, that's that is a surprising I, skip, and that would have been that would have been some interesting but uh, probably disturbing stuff to listen to. Well, it was it was a very surreal experience. You know, it's like you know, like everyone in the Coast Guard, you know, they're they're hardwired to go out and help people, and uh, and we were hearing you know our sister ships out on the search. And uh, we were stuck in Halifax, and we couldn't do anything. You know, it was it was a it was a very sobering experience on the bridge. There was not one word spoken when we were listening listening to it. And like again, I was just a young kid, right? And, and further compounding uh, your your probable uh, frustration at the fact that uh, look at all these you know these these ships are out there doing stuff, and here 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 I am stuck at the dock, basically doing nothing because my ship's too expensive to run. Yeah, that's pretty well it. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's skip back then. So there's you, and uh, we, we, you 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 you're frustrated, but at least you're on a ship. Uh, you're going through your cadet program, and so what what is it that eventually gets you guys off the dock? How does it that you end up uh, heading out to sail? Okay, so what happened was that there was really bad ice conditions in the Gulf that year, and uh, Sydney Harbor got blocked. And uh, with the blockage of Sydney Harbor, of course, that stopped the ferry uh, going back and forth to Newfoundland. And the um, oh yeah uh, okay yeah that 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 actually is a pretty that's a that's a big deal oh it was massive deal right and then all the other icebreakers were just going flat out uh, just trying to keep the uh, the Gulf open so they needed another icebreaker in the mix uh, so the Louis was was dispatched so we left uh, you know roughly March first you know I'm not sure exactly but but around there you know around that time gotcha late and February we, early March somewhere in there yeah. And we sailed up to Sydney, and uh, and we started doing uh, uh, ferry escorts. And uh, it was really, you know, it was what two or three times a day, you know, uh, pick up the ferries outside of Sydney Harbor and bring them to the Marine Atlantic uh, dock. So uh, when you say bring them, the, are are you basically just 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 basically driving in front of them to clear the ice out? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, like we were the icebreaker and we were clearing the path. Now, remember, I wasn't on the bridge at the time, except once I got to steer while we were doing it. Uh, most of my my view of this thing was on deck, looking at the ferry, ferry from you know from the deck level. But, but, but that's that, that's really what we were doing. It was it was really interesting, you know. Like uh, I had no idea, you know, how close the ships would get to each other while they were breaking ice. And so while you and, mentioned and that, taking then the how, pressure, how close are we talking about? Well, my impression was you could have spit and hit the other ship, but no, we were not quite that close. But I'd say we were maybe twenty meters away as we were well, breaking. That, that's pretty along close. The side when you, when you're looking at a ship that's you know three, four hundred feet long, <laughs> that, that 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 does seem pretty close. Well, it is. And you have to like you have to take the pressure off the side of the ship and and all of that kind of stuff. So, so basically, that's what we were doing. We had done a few other odd jobs around Magdalen Islands. We had to. Uh, you know, escorter ship that was stuck up there and, and came back. So then I remember, uh, so that brings us up to the point of, you know, the event. Uh, so that was March 6th. And uh, we were like every other day, we were just kind of waiting outside of Sydney Harbor for the ferry to come over from Newfoundland. And then we were going to, you know, meet them at the ice edge and then bring them into the dock into Sydney. And uh, so, you know, and it was a beautiful, like all the other stories, you know, it's a dark and stormy night. Well, mine's the opposite. It was flat calm. It was beautiful day. There was, was not a breath of wind. It, it is interesting in, in, in emergency response, you know, stories and all the, the training and stuff. Uh, you know, they always tell you uh, bad things don't happen on nice days, but <laughs> lo and behold, apparently they do happen on nice days too. Oh, well, yeah. And that's what happened to us. You know, so it was a beautiful day. Uh, not a breath of wind. The temperature it was a little bit cold. I don't know, minus 10 or something Celsius. But, but it, like, nothing, you know, untoward. No, but by Eastern Canadian March standards, that, that, that sounds like a pleasant day. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And, uh, and that day, we were going to have uh, the first boat fire drill uh, that, uh, you know, since we sailed out of Halifax. So, uh, you know, the routine in the Coast Guard at the time was that uh, you do these uh, drills on the weekends. And uh, because we hadn't really changed, like, like there's only six cadets on a crew of, of 82. So that we didn't hit, trigger the regulatory requirement to do a boat and fire drill because we changed too much of the crew. 
uh, there's only a few new people and that was us so off they went and, and we were going to have our first boat and fire drill on march 6th at one o'clock in the afternoon after lunch okay i've got you and just again for the for the folks at home uh what uh tony's referring to there is uh as soon as typically speaking it's somewhere around the 25 percent mark that you as soon as you change a certain percentage of your crew over uh you have to do a drill as soon as possible so that you've got everybody up to speed on the on the procedures of that ship is it is that about right tony yeah, exactly. I mean, that's enshrined right in the, in the Safety of Life at Sea Convention, which came from Titanic, like since 1912 up to even today. That's that's the rule. Gotcha. Okay, so there you are on this morning, and you know that there's a drill coming at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Are you nervous about yeah. the drill? Do you care, or is it just a thing? Oh, no. I mean, like, uh, like remember, I'm an 18-year-old who kind of ran away from home in Saskatchewan to go to sea, so everything is an adventure, and everything is exciting. That's that's kind of the way, that's the way I was. If, if only all the workers out there could maintain that enthusiasm when they maintain, when they, when they do those drills every month or two weeks or whatever from now to the end of time. <laughs> well, you don't, but okay, now that you're getting into the crux of the story, we'll come back to that point again. Okay, great. But, okay. Uh, so, uh, so, anyways, it was uh, 11... Uh, 11.30. It was somewhere around that. It was before noon, but it wasn't so far away. We're kind of all getting changed to, you know, from working on deck. We were actually chipping and painting somewhere and, uh, you know, getting ready to go for, for lunch in the officer's mess. So we had to get out of our coveralls and get into our uniforms. And the uh, fire alarm goes off. Now, you know, as so as, this is uh, this is just before lunch, somewhere in the eleven thirty ish range. You know that yeah. you've got a drill scheduled for one o'clock, and you're thinking, "Well, gee, it's not one o'clock yet." Is that is that that is that about the mindset that's going on here? Well, that, that's what the rest of the crew was. For me, it says, "Oh, fire, fire alarm!" And I looked at uh, you know my my muster station in the bunk I was in, and said, "You know, report to the uh, to the hospital." But uh, the bunk above me, which I had occupied you know the previous day because i switched berths i uh, said to report uh, with all the other cadets at uh, you know at the officer's lounge so hang on the, so the, the, the the two different bunks in one room reported to two different stations yeah it was the cadets cabin so they kind of depended which bunk you were in depended where you were going and, and in fact it turned out later that all the cadets except for one was supposed to go to the officer's lounge and that one was the one I had just transferred my bunk to the lower berth, which was the hostel. So, uh, interesting. Is that, yeah. So, so that kind of put me into a little bit of a situation. I said, you know what, I'm just going to stick with the rest of the gang. I'm going to go with them to where, where I was. Cause I didn't know whether they knew that I changed my bunks or anything. In fact, it was a great big empty room. So I just changed my bunk because. I oh, wanted so like you, you, you weren't told to change your bunk. You weren't assigned a bunk. You just went, I, no. I like this bed better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like this bed better. Like I don't want to be climbing up there all the time. No. In fact, we had a, a rough day the day before and I realized, you know, the merits of having the lower berth <laughs> so i said okay <laughs> i'm going down to the lower berth right so uh, yeah so you're kind of getting the the sense of what's going on so off we so fire alarm we look on our thing report there um uh i also and, and you know cadets being a little bit keen we also said you know we went back to not we didn't have any med training at that point but just you know, common sense from the college. They told us, you know, if everything ever happens, never go out on deck without warm clothing and stuff. Okay. So we and took by the way, folks, folks at home, uh, MED is? Oh, Marine Emergency Duty okay, Training. Gotcha. So Thank that's you. your basic safety training. Like, uh, this is the bad old days. You could actually go to sea for six months uh, without any safety training. Wow. Wow. Right, because they had such high turnover in the marine industry, why waste safety training on somebody who's going to quit? You know, the day after they go on board the ship. Gotcha. And in fact, in in my year, half of the navigators that went to sea in first year sea phase quit because of seasickness. They couldn't get over it. Well, I, having uh, having been seasick a couple times in my life, I, I I can't judge that too harshly. It is it is not a good time. Yeah. So like so these like after the end of sea phase. In fact, right after uh, you know uh, in in June when we got off the ships, we went to Newfoundland to do our firefighting and first aid and evacuation, all that training, our MED training was happening in the summer of 1982, but in the winter of 82, we were on our first sea fix. Okay. All right. So then oh. uh, back, back to the event then. So you're looking at yeah. where you're supposed to report to muster. You follow the crowd. Yeah, well, we followed the rest of the cadets because we're all in there and uh, being keen cadets, you know, we're, 
we we bring warm clothing and we even bring our life jacket in our hands because we figure oh well you know boat and fire drill i guess fire first boat second so we're standing up there and you know there's a lot of grumbling like people are going to their muster stations and there's a lot of grumbling they say what the hell's going on you know like it's supposed to be one o'clock. Why is it? Why is it eleven thirty? And it's, don't they know? It's hard always as it the is boat to imagine drill. a bunch of seafarers grumbling about having to go to a muster station. I'll, I'll have to take you at your word. <laughs> well, exactly. But more importantly, they were saying, and doesn't the old man or the old man, the captain, you know, it's a slang for the captain. Doesn't the old man know is the boat drill first and then the fire drill? So a lot of, like, I'd say half the crew went to the boat station not to their fire station oh so so uh, okay wait this is getting interesting so now you've got a situation where people because they know a drill is coming they're anticipating the the, the usual flow of the drills and they're just kind of just going ahead and 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 following like falling into that routine as opposed to following the actual alarm yeah that's right i mean they okay you know boat and fire drill alarm went off they just autopilot they went to, you know the old man made a mistake i'm going to my boat station now some people went to the fire stations and some went to the boat station interesting okay right so anyways we're standing there there's not much going on uh, the alarms are, are ringing and then i start smelling smoke and and we're kind of looking at each other as cadets and saying you know the, the coast guard is going all out on these drills right and we start seeing a little bit of smoke coming out of the passageway and say wow smoke bombs all works right um, and then it became real, real fast because the electrical officer came running down from the bridge deck, and uh, and you, you and people you know, don't usually like super, run in drills, so that's not a good sign, is it? No, and and you can tell when people are like very stressed out and very excited, and he was ex like like this guy we we met before, like he was just you know very calm all the time, but he was super excited. And he pointed at us, or he pointed at me actually, and said, "Go get the air pack from the engine room." The so, air uh, air pack? Yeah, Scott air pack. You know, oh, okay. So yeah. like a, a breathing bottle, like the sort of thing. The you breathing use apparatus. For, yeah, right. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's the brand name. Sorry. I guess I got to be careful. The breathing apparatus. No, no. Don't worry about that. It, just for just for clarity for everybody listening. So we're talking about the sort of thing you know, like firefighters wear. You put a, a air tank on your back, put a mask on, so you can breathe in a smoky environment or something, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And because we were cadets, while we were wasting our, not wasting our time, while we were in Halifax, you know, sitting there, uh, one of the things we had to do was to make a hand sketch of the entire ship and the location of every extinguisher, air pack, fire hose, everything on the ship. And that was part of our training, is that the chief officer was going to quiz us that we had to know where everything was from memory. So that was the tr that was the training that we were doing as cadets. So when he said, go get the Scott air pack from the engine room, I knew exactly where it was. Okay. I knew where the, okay. the closest right. so, one was, right? Lo and behold, your, 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 your make work project actually paid off a little bit. Big time. So I go down there and uh, that was, uh, I, I think in the mid eighties, there was a change in the way that muster lists were done. We were in the early eighties. Um, in the early eighties, the crew was not organized around fire teams or boat teams or rescue teams uh the crew was was designated to go to certain locations on the ship and then the officers would assemble the fire team and the boat team and all that kind of stuff from the people so there was oiler number i don't know oiler number 10 was assigned to stand by scott air pack number three and wait for instructions that's basically how how the muster list worked okay all right i've got you right so i go down to you know scott air pack three which was the closest one and i'm starting to and there's you know oiler number 10 standing there and uh, i start you know unshackling the the air pack to bring it up to the bridge and he stops me and says you know that's the air pack for the engine room you can't touch that um anyways we had very brief and intense words <laughs> and i got the, i got a, the point across to him that there actually was a fire but he didn't believe me he still think he still thought it was a drill going on right so so now you, you so you're saying that like you know there's a fire now so you before you'd been on deck and you you know thought that as you said that the coast guard was really going all up for the drills well what was the trigger that you knew that, that this was real was it was it this uh, this electrician or whatever who came down and yep. was was so that's when yep. you knew this was this was we're, we're not joking around here this is the real deal there's real and it actually came from lifeguard lifeguard training as strange as it is because i had the same thing kind of happen to me as a lifeguard is you're always pretending people are drowning like your friends oh i'm drowning i'm drowning save me right um 
the first time you're encountered with a drowning person, your initial instinct is that they're not actually drowning. Then all of a sudden you wake up and you say, oh, whoa, wait a second, they are drowning. And you go in and get them, right? So because I had that experience, when I correlated smoke, uh, smell of smoke, the, the sight of smoke and a very excited guy, then just my, my switch flipped. And I said, no, there's a real fire. That's, that's what triggered me, right? I don't know about other people, but that's, no, that's but what it's, it's, it me. sounds like your uh, sounds like your uh, human evolution biological responses were working correctly. Thankfully, yeah, thankfully, yeah. So anyway, so I pulled the uh, air pack out of uh, oiler number ten's hands and said, "There's a fire." I said, "You should tell someone in the engine room," and I ran back up and and passed the uh, Scott air pack off to the uh, the group that was assembling to go and investigate where the smoke was coming from, and uh, at that point. Um, like all the other cadets were not lifeguards or anything like that, but I was a lifeguard and I had some medical training. So, you know, I don't know if it was the right thing or the wrong thing, but I said, you know, my muster station is actually in the hospital and I probably should be in the hospital. So anyways, I let them know what I was doing. We all, it was kind of a consensus. So I said like, you know, what should we do here? And I said, yeah, off, off you go to the hospital. Anyone comes looking, we'll let them know that's, that was your muster station. That's so where you th went. this is just you or you and a bunch of cadets? Yeah, it was just me and the six cadets. We all kind of did a huddle. I mean, like, there's no officers. There's nobody here telling us what to do. We're just trying to figure out. So what you're, our, you're, our you're in, as you, what did you say, your, your seventh day on the... On seventh day at sea. And, yeah. and you've been left unattended in what is, by all appearances, a real emergency. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. Yeah, exactly. So I go back to the uh, hospital, and, the, and there was the... Uh, we had a... We, we carried a nurse at that time. And uh, reported for duty, and uh, sure enough, she checked me off on that, and then reported back up that I was now relocated from where I was to to this new location. And uh, seemed that she was happy that I was there because I did have my lifeguard training and it was still all current, you know, as far as being able to do something. So, so that was fine. So, what had happened though is that remember I said the Scott Air Pack was was picked up. Yep. Um, they assembled two hose teams to go and investigate smoke coming out of the captain's cabin. And in the accident investigation, what they found, what what was going on, there was space heaters in the officer's deck, and uh, they were in the closets. And the space heater in the captain's cabin caught his clothes on fire, which with the 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 fire from the clothing went up into the void space between the bridge deck and the officer's deck, which had accumulated twelve years of dust that had never been cleaned out. So it just filled the bridge with smoke. They thought that the the consoles were on fire, like an electrical fire on the consoles, but it wasn't. It was actually coming smoke from the void space, which was originating from the captain's cabin. Huh. Wow. So, so, so this, they, there was they a evacuated space the bridge in a closet? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it turned out I, I read the TSB, or sorry, not the, the Transport Canada Ship Safety Bulletin that was issued 10 days after the fire. You know, as part of getting ready for this, and it turned out there was twenty four of those on board the ship, all, all stowed into closets of all places. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. Yep. So. Yeah. So, so this kind of explains what why there's a breakdown is because the smoke hit the bridge. Uh, now, I talked to my friend, like uh, the guys that were on the bridge. You know, they became my colleagues later, and they they recounted their story to me, and they said, you know, that the. the the bridge filled with smoke. They discharged all the extinguishers into the console they thought was on fire. It didn't do anything. The smoke was getting worse and worse. They hit the fire alarm bell and had to evacuate the bridge. So you go back to the way that they were trained in their drills. The command and control center for the ship was the bridge. Which which has now been evacuated. Been evacuated. Oh, my goodness. So, right? from, so from that's why communications worse. broke down, right? They're, that's why no one was being told anything because there was no one to tell anybody anything right so they created an ad hoc they, they kind of figured that the smoke was coming out of the captain's cabinet that was the, the source of the problem it, it took them i don't know I, I, my perception about 10 minutes to figure it out so they assembled uh, two host teams with all of the senior people on board the ship so the captain chief engineer chief electrical officer bosun carpenter like all wait wait wait, the, wait, wait. Know, so the top guys uh, i'm trying to, so the senior the people in charge then are now becoming the, the hosting the fire team yes okay okay right okay so they this go and they open up they open up the door to the captain's cabin to see what's going on and a fireball comes out and takes out all of them what Lowers. and the reason why is they didn't have any water in their hoses 
So they, they, do they connect them to the hydrants on the ship? Everything was, but when you do drills inside of the ship, you don't put water in the hoses because it creates a mess. So by proxy of that, then they, they had connected the hoses, but just like in drills, they hadn't put water in them. So they go crack open this door and are we talking like backdraft type stuff here? Yeah. 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 Because I was in the hospital. So I saw the after, like all this stuff, I wasn't there when it happened, but I saw the aftermath of it because I was in the hospital. And then we started getting these burn victims coming into, into the hospital and some of them very, like very serious, seriously burned. Right. Oh so, my goodness. And, and, yeah. and, and not because problems aren't bad enough. We're, we're back to the senior people on the ship, the captain, the bosun, like your senior people, the people that are supposed to be in charge are the ones that grabbed the gear to go fight the fire, didn't put water in the hoses. And so this is the people that just got taken out by this fireball. Yeah. So then the firefighting effort was down to the next tier of officers on board the ship. And uh, at that point, my friends, remember, they're milling around still what's going on. When the fireball happened, then the, uh, the next tier went and grabbed them and put them on fire, fire uh, uh, hose duty. Because basically, we had the top two decks of the ship were now on fire. And uh, they were firefighting from the outside, like outside of combinations inside. And that's where the Scott air packs were. Like we ran out of Scott air packs for the fire teams within, I don't know, 20 minutes. Yeah. They, 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 they don't minutes. last long, do they? Once you get going, no. once you get huffing and puffing. Right. So then firefight. So we, there was nearby ships. There's two other coast guard ships kind of came near us. And uh, we started organizing a helicopter airlift of their Scott air packs to us and us evacuating burn victims from us to them. Oh my goodness. Um, this is incredible. Holy cow. So then after like the fire was going on for about, I don't know, three or f three or four hours. So at the end of it, actually it was breath holding is what, it, how we were, how they were fighting the, fighting no, you're, you're going to have to describe that. Cause I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time with that. Are we talking about people going into a smoking area? Cause there's no more Scott packs. Uh, yep. So trying to fight fire while holding their breath. Yeah, getting as close as they could. They couldn't get right into them, but it was more like fire containment. They'd hold their breath and they'd do relay races. And the water coming out of the hose was at like one degree Celsius. And the water rushing past their feet was uh, like really warm. It was like the hottest bath water you could you could think of, right? So like uh, going into the, the hot space and, and then as it floods back out, it's been heated up yeah. by the space kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Holy jeez. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so that was going on for, no, I wasn't involved in that part. This is my, my friends told me that. So again, if you read the report and there's something different in there, well, my friends didn't tell me the uh, truth. Now we're, ta we're but, taking uh, Anthony Patterson. This is, this is the fact. And obviously the report is wrong. We're going with this story. I like this better. <laughs> yeah, well, this is an 18 year old from Saskatchewan, seventh day at sea perspective. This is what it is with zero emergency training, right? So, uh, so because I was in the hospital, he had the burn victims. Uh, I was helping the nurse bring them up to the helicopter deck and to package them up and get them into helicopters to fly off, fly them off. And then the order came. Uh, no, the captain, the captain didn't leave the ship. He was burnt, but he was he didn't leave the ship, and he was organizing a lot of the stuff as well. So he's still he's still he's still active. He's still doing stuff. He's still, he's still active, but okay. the, uh, he he was hurt pretty bad though. But anyways, he was still he was still very active. So the um, uh, so what can I say there? So the order came out then to evacuate non-essentials, non which we had done. Um, uh, the most of the crew was was dedicated to firefighting, so it was me and the bosun's mate actually had to do a, a lot of the other stuff. So he was on the uh, you know the uh, the foam system for helicopter operations, and I was the guy at the tank. Had the five minute briefing, you know, if the helicopter crashes and burns, hit this button, right? <laughs> so, so I had that. Nothing um, like on the job went, training, I guess. Well, exactly. And then it was, uh, uh, we had to go rig emergency towing gear on the stern so that the ships could tow us. Because uh, a wind was starting to pick up a little bit and the fire was starting to, to uh, progress into the ship, like from the from the front of the ship aft so sorry. so we want to turn are we, are we like like are we 45 minutes into this an hour into this two hours into this where, where do you think we're about at 45 here? minutes now here yeah, about okay. 45 minutes okay yeah. so you know then we're getting we were getting one of the other coast guard ships then to rig a tow to the stern of, of our ship and then tow the stern into the wind so the fire would be blowing forward 
and not into the accommodation to help the firefighting, which which ultimately they did, and it was you know it worked like a charm. So, but uh, again, like you know, you're rigging. I was rigging these ten inch mooring hazards with the boats mate for for towing with uh, with another ship and getting the messenger lines out. Uh, uh, we had a hundred. I don't know how many. I, I, to me, it was 100, maybe 150, maybe 30. 45-gallon uh, drums of aviation gas that were lashed to the rail just behind the fire. Oh, dear. So after oh, dear, we dear, had, dear. yeah, after it took us two days to load it in Halifax and took the bosun's mate and myself about 20 minutes to get them all back on the flight deck after everyone had flown off. Uh, rig, we had to rig the... Um, uh, was it the Davit Launch Life Raft? Basically, reading the instructions on the Davit Launch Life Raft and then just doing what it said so, and get it rigged and ready to go. So, just quickly for the folks at home, uh, everyone probably knows what a life raft is, but uh, a Davit Launch Life Raft is one that you would, uh, you would, it, it actually hangs off a little crane type thing, uh, a Davit, uh, yep. so that you can board it at height and then sort of lower yourself down to the water rather than having to jump in. And so, and never having used it before, never having had any any of the marine emergency duty training, you guys are literally reading the instructions on the on the shell like reading the instructions on the outside of it that's it that's exactly it oh, and uh so so all that was going on right and um the, uh, so they finally got the fire under control up on the uh, you know on the uh, accommodation area enough and we we were able to get because back then you uh ships could uh, recharge their own air packs so the other Coast Guard ships were recharging air packs, and it was kind of a shuttle service going on, and, and they were oh, getting and, and then cycling them back, back to, to you guys, right? Yeah. So we had a few spare that were full, and uh, once the fire was under control enough, they spent they sent a team into the ship just to do a quick inspection of the rest of the ship, because after the alarms went off, uh, I'd say it was like five minutes, maybe ten minutes after the alarm went off, that you were not getting back in the accommodations for any reason. Right, so we had a lot of people actually just left having flip flops and t-shirts. Right, and we had to evacuate them because, like, uh, gloves and and hats and warm coats became you know the number one thing. Oh, so yeah, I, I, that you I had forgot to have, about right? that completely. So now you're back to the fact that people came out for what they thought was going to be a drill, grumbling about it. So completely unprepared for what turned into a real emergency that that. From 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 the account here and from and from the reports escalated incredibly quickly and so now they got <laughs> they're outside and you can't get in the accommodations because it's damaged burning etc so now you got people trapped outside uh, in in the North Atlantic I mean we're not way up in the yeah. north north here but uh, it's still March in Canada oh my goodness oh, it was minus ten like I said like it was a nice nice day so like they weren't getting frozen with wind chill but it's pretty cold it was cold enough outside right. So, um, yeah, so anyway, so we had, to, but anyways, go back to the guys that went inside of the ship and, uh, uh, they found that the galley was about to go, was actually on fire. And this goes back again to drills. So what happens during a drill is that the cooks, uh, just, they, they, they go up with their life jackets in their hands. They say, I'm here and you go check you're there. And then they're immediately excused to go back down to the galley to keep cooking. Which which if, which if, which sounds weird, except that boy, that food is important on a ship. <laughs> well, well, it is right because you can interrupt, you know, supper or whatever your next meal is if you take the cooks out of the galley and they got to shut everything down, you know, for an hour. You will you will you'll have sandwiches for supper. You know, you're not going to have food, or sorry, you're not going to have hot food. So they when they left, remember this was a boat and fire drill, and the old man hit the wrong button. Oh my God! So they they just you know had their their whites on, you know their their white cooking. Uh, gear they yeah, grabbed okay. their life like jacket, their, their, their cook went, outfits yeah the chef outfits right? kind of thing yeah they went up to the uh, to the boat deck standing there with the life jackets in their hands waiting for someone to say okay tag you know go back to the to the galley but remember supper was starting to be served so everything was on the stove and all the stoves were on full blast oh my goodness what right so when they came back it all caught fire the galley was on fire in the now. This is down in the middle of the ship, and we got zero chance of fighting a fire inside of the ship at this point. So what they had to do is close the doors and pull the fire suppression system. And thank God that knocked it out. Otherwise, probably the ship would have been lost. Holy jeez! On top of everything else, like you've spent all this time trying to wrestle this fire upstairs, and the whole time there was another one brewing downstairs. Yep. Oh my goodness! Yep. Yeah. So, so that was pretty well the end of all that excitement. The, the rest of the time, like the denouement of all 
stuff was that uh, we were on the fire watch overnight. Uh, in the morning, uh, we had uh, we were uh, we were towed into Sydney. There was uh, two ships. Uh, I think by that time the Labrador had come up, if I remember right. So the Labrador was uh, breaking a channel, and we had two blenders, one alongside and one towing in front of us, and uh, trying to keep us from hitting the ice. Uh, and a few times we did hit the, so our ship would stop dead. The other ships would keep going and we were snapping these 10 inch hawsers like they were just rubber bands and no problem. Right. Um, uh, anyways, so we, we got into to Sydney and, uh, you know, uh, that was wonderful. Um, a couple of days later, we got towed down to Halifax, the Coast Guard college lent us their, um, uh, uh, their gyro compass that they used for teaching because we had no gyro compasses or anything. And we had to steer from the emergency steering flat. That was the other job of the cadets. We had the great big massive wheels, I don't know, like 30 feet in diameter. And this is how you're, and, this you know, is how you're, you're ruddering the ship? Yeah, exactly. So the uh, they set up a temporary bridge in the, um, in the officer's mess. And uh, we, we were just trying to steer to stay, you know, to ease the, the strain on the tow line. Uh, so they would just call down to us, uh, you know, of course it's the steer, and we have this great big massive wheel. Like it's like an old movie, right? We had uh, one person on one side, another one on the other side, and you're just grabbing a spoke and pulling it down, grabbing a spoke and pulling it down <laughs> to turn the wheel. <laughs> and uh, and the gyro compass, the only place we could find fit it, it was sideways. So we whatever course they gave us, we had to add ninety degrees to it and then steer that. Right? Anyway, so it was. That was a lot of fun. So, I mean, it's a Coast Guard <laughs> ship in the 1980s, and you're basically steering, you know, like something from the 1300s almost. Like, uh, you know, you call, yeah. you're just yelling down to the, to the, and then a bunch of people just turning a big giant wheel. That's, that is crazy. So, I got to ask this, and I'm almost scared to know the answer, but uh, in all this drama and in all this fire alarm that, you know, wasn't really taken seriously and then turned out to be real, and then you've got a sudden escalation of people, uh, the people in charge get caught in, in the fire and, did you guys were you able to get a full muster were you able to account for everybody yeah okay yeah so everyone was accounted for nobody died in the incident there was a couple of people who were really seriously hurt and uh and i i think it that hurt that led subsequently to to a death uh, later oh, on but no. there's nobody oh, at no. the incident itself that that was that was that died you know the day that the incident occurred but but the uh the, the um, I'm, I'm guessing here the, the burns and such uh from yeah the, okay yeah, wow yeah the injuries were all the, the serious injuries were all burn oh wow injuries. oh no yeah which are you know there's probably the worst ones that to have but yeah so you know and, and you know i when i it was it was interesting is that all the stuff we did in that day, like we had cat, uh, catting an anchor. There's a very specialized term. Basically you disconnect the anchor from the anchor cable and you use the anchor cable to attach to a tow line from a ship. So it gives you a very strong pull, but like uh, that's called catting an anchor. Uh, and, and you, you know jam your I've anchor. I've never heard that phrase before, but uh, it's going in the, going in the memory banks now. You, well, exactly. So it's, uh, you know, and the anchor is kept in the anchor pocket. Well, you you do have to know how to do that in your training, and you're taught that at the master mariner level. And it, and most people in their entire career will never cat an anchor. <laughs> I'm, I'm and 20, I catted I'm 20 an something anchor. years into mine, and I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I catted two anchors, uh, you know, with the boatswain's mate. You know, it's you know, on my seventh day at sea. So, you know, you talk about an acceleration of some aspects of the training. I mean, that, that experience did it. That is sure. incredible. Yeah. You, I mean, you covered, uh, well, thankfully, uh, you didn't have to use any sea survival stuff, but it sounds like all of the, the firefighting training that you, <laughs> that you would have got eventually, uh, and the, you know, first aid training that as it happens, you had because of your life, uh, lifeguard background, and then all of your, your, your nautical type training, uh, how to how to cat an anchor and to arrange and slip houses and uh, and so forth. Uh, sounds like you got you got the the crashiest crash course in that that one could ever get. Well, yeah, exactly. That's the way I look at it. So you know, so what did I get from that? I mean, like it was a it's a very exciting story. But, but like, what what came out of that? And uh, the number one thing that I got out of that uh, from that's that experience right up until today is it really makes a difference on how you do your your emergency drills on board 
it is probably the most critical thing that you do on board the ship because you fight exactly the same way as you train. And when you put people under stress, whatever you do in a drill and whatever shortcut you put in the drill for whatever reason is that when the time comes, people will forget that it's a shortcut. That's uh that that that's that's very interesting you say that and that is a recurring theme that the what what you what you what you drill people to do and what you repeat and repeat and repeat in your drills is what they will do in an emergency even if it's suddenly inappropriate or incorrect or even completely illogical uh and as yeah. you say i mean the the doing the drills with the, with the fire hoses like with no water and i perfectly understand you, you don't want water in your accommodations but if you don't ever test it how would you ever know oh my goodness like that's that's crazy anyway i'm sorry to interrupt there yeah no but I mean, it, it's a very common theme i mean you look in accident investigation reports and this just keeps happening over and over again and and the solas convention the safety of life at sea convention it says right in there that your drills have got to be as realistic as practicable now practicable is a legal term it means that you don't don't do a drill that you're going to hurt anybody, but get as close as you can without crossing that threshold. And, you know, there's a lot of things that you do in emergency, like responding to emergencies, like they're dangerous. Like it's hard to use operational equipment in a drill and be realistic without having danger of hurting somebody. If you're going to push the realism card. Yeah. hundred percent. So correct. hundred percent. Right. So you start to, you know, I, I call them shortcuts. So not, it's not shortcuts. I mean, there's very valid reasons why you don't push the limits during a drill. You don't want to hurt anybody during a drill. You know, I, I, I when I became, you know, captain of a ship, I didn't want to hurt anyone during a drill and I never did, but that's, but, but that's just the necessity of it. So I, you know, when you start looking at what I'm currently doing in simulation, I mean, this is really a big incentive is that experience I had on the Louis was what can we do to make these drills more realistic? Well, it's uh, that's that sounds like a powerful motivation. Uh, that that's like that that is a remarkable story. How how quickly that turned wrong, and how it you know the the as uh, as we often say that the dominoes lining up or the the Swiss cheese holes lining up. Uh, you know the 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 fairly relaxed attitude towards drills. Uh, the 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 the. Uh, I don't. I hate to use the word complacency, but I can't think of another word that fits where where you, you know there's a drill, so you just kind of show up, tick, you know, get your name ticked off at the uh, at the muster list or at the muster station, and then just go back to work, kind of thing. And all of a sudden, all of that comes to bear in an in in an awful hurry. Like that is just yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, when things start to snowball on you, they they snowball. Like uh, in the she said, I was in the search and rescue side. So like, you know, fast forward a few years in my career after that, you know, I'm on the SAR on the search and rescue side of the thing, rescuing people in these situations. And, um, you know, again, you just, you just see it is that when you talk to people after you've pulled out of the water or got them off their boats or whatever, it's like, they're kind of a standard how quickly things snowball. Like once it starts to go, it goes really, really fast. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's uh, and no, no, no greater evidence than than the story you just told. Uh, that's incredible. So, uh, I'll ask this thing. So, you said one thing, one of your big takeaways uh, would be would be you know drill drill as realistic as you can, and and uh, is it is it fair to say you'd probably agree with um, you know add some variety to your drills? So, and I mean that a lot of times on ships they'll they'll kind of do their they'll they'll do the drills, but you know it's just kind of show up at the lifeboat station or the muster station. Uh, sit around, have a brief, uh, maybe don the suits once in a while. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is, would you agree that it's probably a good idea? Throw some spice in there from time to time. Do a fire drill from time to time. Do a a person in the water drill, stuff like that. Oh, I I can't, I can't agree more. I, I think the essence of the drills is that uh, you should have the crew never know exactly what's going to happen. Like they've got to be trained how to expect the unexpected. Otherwise, they will not have resilience. Um, the the drill like the drills are not only like the technical thing like uh, how does this piece of equipment work and where do I go when the alarm goes off and what does the alarm sound like it's more than that it is that something is occurring um, there's going to be no incident that's ever going to be the same as a drill so why do you make the drills predictable like and I'm not talking about like throw the alarm off at three in the morning because there's good reasons why you don't want to do that 
but when you do have drills, people should be going there and saying, okay, like what's in store? Like what's going on? They've got to develop this, this sense that they've got to keep their eyes and ears open and adjust to things as they are occurring rather than to have a mental model that things are always going to be the same. Otherwise, they will not have resilience. And if they don't have resilience, they're going to run into a big problem. Yeah, that's well said. That's very well said. Uh, okay, Tony, I think that's probably a good spot there, uh, unless you have any last tidbits that you wanted to add in. No, no, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad you're having this podcast because it's, uh, it's good for people to get these stories out. Um, you know, that, that, that's part that's of how you learn from we're, each other, right? Yeah, exactly right. Is we're trying to uh, to further the knowledge, and uh, it, it's hard to beat the the uh, sort of the eye opening, you know, eye popping uh, part of a story when when you talk to somebody who's really been there. And I mean, the story you just told, I had not heard that, Tony. We've known each other for for ten uh, ish years now, uh, and uh, I've never heard that story before. And I'm 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 floored over here. Like that is that is an intense that is an intense story. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you made it out of there, and I'm glad just about everybody else is due. I'm sorry for uh, the, uh, the the those that didn't. I don't know all the details there, but um, I, I hope that uh, that you and and the rest of the the people that did come through uh, are wiser for it. I, I know you are because I know what you do for a living. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can guarantee you the the uh, the people that uh, I'm still connected with that that had that were on that fire that that fire changed them. They all have the same perspective is it's got to be real. It's got to be as real as you can make it. Okay. Well, that's thanks. That's uh, fantastic. Thank you uh, so much, uh, Anthony Patterson, um, for joining us on the show today. And uh, I get the sense from a few comments you made there that there might be a few other, uh, a few other nuggets of gold uh, rolling around in your in your storybook uh, vault in your head. Uh, so, uh, I, if if you're willing, uh, one of these days we'd love to have you back on the show. Oh, happy to do it. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much, Tony. Uh, take care, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. If you have a story to tell or know of someone who does, please contact us at Legacy Survival Stories, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find us at LegacySurvivalStories.BuzzSprout.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and help us move up the charts with a five-star rating. We like comments and reviews, so we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and almost anywhere you can find podcasts. Legacy Survival Stories.